Welcome to episode 95 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jinstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed, but with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 95 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And how are you doing today, Jen? Well, I am on day four of the flu. I actually am so much better. It was really bad for two days. I have not been sick like this since 2015. So hats off to four years of nothing worse than a minor cold, but this has been no joke. I feel so bad for you. (laughs) Ever since I found out you were sick, I was thinking about you every day, by the way. I was like, I hope she's getting better. Well, thank you. Yeah, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks, which is what the flu does. Like one minute I was fine. And then the next minute I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm so sick. So I had like a temperature of over 102 for two days. The body is amazing. You know, we forget how good it feels to feel good. When you're sick, you're like, oh, you take for granted how great you feel normally. Because I couldn't keep my eyes open. I couldn't remain vertical. So like yesterday, it was day three. I was able to be vertical for like the whole day. And I'm like, victory, I'm vertical. (laughs) (laughs) The small things. I was even able to cook dinner last night. So yeah, but everything tastes weird now. I heard a quote the other day and it was saying, when you have your health, you want so many things. But when you don't want your health, you want just one thing. And that's to get your health back. That's right. All I wanted was to get better. But The side effect that's, besides the fact that I'm still running a very tiny fever, it's like 99, which is nothing. It feels like a miracle after 102, but my taste buds are off. And so even water and coffee, San Pellegrino, they all taste weird. It's a very different experience. It makes you reevaluate your relationship with food or like what food is in a way. Yeah. Like my dinner last night, I was like, I don't even like this. It doesn't even have the taste of food. (laughs) I know. I hope tonight's dinner has the taste of food. We'll see. But it's amazing. I just fasted through it. I mean, I didn't completely fast. I ate. The first day I had some bona fide bone broth. I had the soup. And I think that helped a lot. And orange juice. And just slept and slept. And then the second day, I had some more bone broth soup. I had the French onion soup. And then I had an egg sandwich. But I mean, it literally, that egg sandwich tasted like I was eating cardboard. It wasn't good at all. But then I just went to bed. And then the third day, I felt so much better. So I think fasting made it go by better, if that makes sense. The duration was a whole lot shorter because I've had the flu before. Like I said, 2015, I had it. And I just remember being in the bed for a lot more than two days. Yeah, it's amazing what fasting can do for getting better. And I know we've had questions before about should you fast when you're sick? Should you not fast when you're sick? And I think it's really a matter of just being really intuitive and doing what your body says to do. But, you know, if you're not feeling hungry while sick, I think it can be therapeutic and help as well. And just in general, supporting your immune system. I couldn't have had more to eat because my body didn't want it. And I think I was just wrong when I said I on the day two I had soup and an egg sandwich. I think I didn't have the soup till day three. I think I only had the egg sandwich on day two. But I just literally had no appetite. So I listened to my body. Instead of trying to force myself, you know, to eat a lot of food, my body was like, "Uh uh-uh, just lay on the couch. I was watching Grey's Anatomy. That's the one fun thing about being sick. You have excuses to just watch. It's true. Binge watch. It's true. It's healing. Yep. It did. It is. (laughs) So I'm feeling so much better. I'm glad. Makes me very happy. Well, good. But I might sound a little off today. My voice, I think, is probably a little weird. I'm a little nasally. So everybody, sorry. And I might not sound very smart. So (laughs) 
Well, we all know you're smart, so it's all good. (laughs) Reminds me of, have you seen the whole discussion about the difference between TH1 and TH2 dominant systems? No, I have not. (laughs) (laughs) I think one reason I very rarely get like sick sick is because, so there's two parts of your immune system. One is TH1, one is TH2. And I always forget which is which. One of them is like your response to allergens and everyday irritants and things like that. And then the other one is your response to infection, you know, more like sickness, sickness. Right. So if you're more dominant in one rather than the other, one of the traits is that you might kind of always be reacting to everything environmentally, but you don't get actually sick because your immune system's like always on versus the opposite where you don't really react much to anything, but then if you do get sick, it's worse because your immune system is not always reacting. There's a really interesting self-hacked post that goes into all the details on it. That is interesting. So I'll put a link to that. Fascinating. In the show notes. All right. Just made me think about it. Okay. And then once you read it, you'll start noticing when you're reading like studies and stuff, you'll start seeing like a TH1, TH2, and they'll be like, oh, I know what that is now. Yeah. I kind of know what that's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have one little fun hack I got. Okay. I've been working more on my hacking my sleep situation, and I got two things. Oh, I can't wait to hear. No, three things. Did I talk about the gravity blanket? I don't think so. So three things I haven't talked about. Well, the goat mattress, (laughs) you know, eye mask, earplugs, blackout curtains, red light at night, all that stuff. I got a weighted blanket. Have you heard of these? I have. I think they're good for, I don't know, are they good for like kids who have autism? That's where I've heard of it. They are good for that. They're just also good for sleeping and insomnia and anything because basically they're very heavy blankets and they mimic the feeling of being held. Yeah. That's the concept. Well, it's like when they put one of those on a dog that's having, you know, thunder issues. They have like thunder coats. It's the same kind of a thing. Have you seen those? I have not. Yeah, they make thunder coats for dogs and it wraps them up tightly and it helps them when it's thundering or if it's the 4th of July. So yeah, it's kind of like that. And they're becoming really popular and there's quite a few different ones on Amazon. I spent so long researching being like, which one to get? But I'm really happy with the one that I got and it comes in different weights, but I got like a smaller one that's like a medium-ish weight and I really like it. It's really nice for sleeping. The only thing is it's like a workout now getting in bed (laughs) because you can't just go into bed and pull on the covers and be good. It's like I have to <laughs> I have to like get in bed and then like lift this huge heavy thing and like to resituate it, you can't just resituate the blanket. Yeah. It's like a workout. <laughs> and then when I get out of the bed for anything in the middle of the night and come back to bed, it's like I gotta resituate everything. But I really like it. So I kept it. I liked it so much they make weighted masks. So I bought one of those and that came yesterday, but not a fan, actually. Oh. It doesn't stay on my face as a side sleeper. Okay. So I think it'd be great if you sleep on your back, maybe. Yeah, I like flail around in all the positions, like I'm doing a dance. So I would wake up, it would be like across the room. Yeah. <laughs> I like the concept, but I'm just going to stick with the blanket. And then the third thing was I bought, I love this, I bought stilts, like stilts to raise my bed, to tilt my bed. Okay, so that's interesting. So why do you, why did you need that? The way a lot of fluid and stuff clears from our brain is from gravity because there aren't actual like pumps pumping out fluid from our brain. So while we're standing up, gravity kind of helps with 
clearing out our brain and our, you know, cerebral fluid. And like our lymph system. Yeah, and everything. But when you're sleeping, you're completely horizontal. And especially for those of us doing a one meal a day pattern, so if we're eating closer to bed, especially people who struggle with like reflux or digestive issues. Reflux, yeah. Being horizontal doesn't help that either. So I looked into actually raised pillows and I ordered one of those, but it was like, they don't really make one that's like organic and doesn't have like chemicals and stuff. So I returned that. (laughs) So now I just bought actual stilts and put them on like the head part of my bed. So now my whole bed frame is tilted and I did it for the first time last night. Love it. Love it. Okay. I have a sleep number bed, and I'm just really sad, by the way, because since we were just talking about sleeping, I was like, I want to see how long I slept while I was sick with the flu because, you know, it records my sleep. And I realized I got a new router, new Wi-Fi on Monday, so I don't have any data from my sleeping for the past few days. I was thinking that's one of my other hacks is I turn off all Wi-Fi at night. Oh, I do not. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it needs to track my bed, needs the Wi-Fi to, anyway. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Can you just hardwire in? I don't know. Your bed? I'm not sure. Ethernet, your bed? I don't know. But they make beds that do that, that adjust. Like they have the beds themselves. Like you can have a different side for you and for your partner. Mm -hmm. And they even can automatically sense if one of you is snoring and then it like automatically raises you up. Raises, yeah, yeah. Dave Asprey was talking about it in his new Game Changers book that I've been recently listening to on Audible. I was like, I need to do that. I need to tilt my bed. And the things I bought, they're like $10 on Amazon. Best investment ever. Well, good. So it's all about links to all the crazy hacks if you want to start outfitting your whole sleeping situation. Like I do. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. Okay. So to start things off, we have quite a few questions, all related to one particular topic, but... While doing so, I think we get a lot of nice listener stories and feedback from listeners, and they also go into some tangents. So we're just going to tackle them all. There's going to be a theme, but I'm sure there will be tangents galore. Yes. Shall we start? Yes, let's get started. We'll have to see if listeners can figure out the theme as we go. I know I won't say the theme. Don't say. (laughs) Try to guess the theme. All right, you're about to say. (laughs) We're not going to tell you. (sighs) Should I not read the subject? Go ahead, read the subject. Okay. First question comes from Sally, and the subject is chewing gum, not at all related to the theme. (laughs) Sally says, Hi, Jen and Melanie. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now, and I'm so glad I found it. You have really interesting conversations and give lots of information about fasting and health in general. I look forward to listening to new episodes, and I'm slowly doing my best to catch up with all the previous episodes. I am from Wales in the UK, and I've been following the 5-2 way of eating for a few months. I have lost about two stones, 28 pounds, and I'm planning on losing one more stone to get down to a healthy weight in BMI. I started 5-2 after reading the Fast Diet book by Michael Mosley, a UK doctor, in which he experimented with lots of different types of fasting. I want to keep eating this way for life, especially when I hear or read more about the health benefits and it is so easy to do and fit into my life. I typically fast during two working weekdays, not back-to-back, and do change them as I need to, and find it amazingly easy to not eat or drink anything other than water until usually about 7 to 8 p.m., when I usually have a cup of tea and a salad or some soup. I don't count the calories, but I do try to stay around 500. I know I can have whatever I want the next day, and usually I don't even want it then. I think my body is now craving less sugary and bad foods. I have been reading up on the gut recently, which is fascinating and does support this idea. 
In addition to improving my eating on my five days, I have also started exercising after having a long think about what activity I could fit into my life and discovered that I love step aerobics. Jen, is step aerobics one of the things you've done in your gym excursions? Well, I did step aerobics back in like the 80s, I guess, when it came out. And so, no, I have not done it recently. But you've done it. (laughs) Oh, I have done it. Yeah, I don't know that I was really good at it. (laughs) I do this at home in the mornings a few days a week with a YouTube video and usually always exercise the morning after a fasting day with tons of energy. I've also found that keeping a food weight exercise diary every day is really motivating and good at keeping me on track. Let me interrupt just to say, I'm just not good at that type of aerobic activity where like everybody's supposed to be following the teacher and doing what she's doing. I just look like I'm crazy. So hats off to anybody that can do that. No, that's a good point too. I feel like with exercise for me, I don't, yeah, I almost don't like doing it when I'm following a teacher or something as much because I feel like then it's like it becomes a chore. Like I have to do this exercise right now right? versus me going and I'm like, I'm moving because I want to move, you know? Right. And see, that's what Pilates feels like to me. Pilates feels like very intuitive and I'm doing the motion at my own pace and I'm doing it the way I want to do it. But, you know, everyone looks like they're having so much fun in the classes. You know, like I remember the step class or the class that I went to, the one dance aerobic based class that everyone was doing the moves and following the instructor. And I just felt like super stressed out the whole time. And you see, I have a dance background, so you would think I might not feel like that, but I did. I guess to each his own. Yeah. Because obviously Sally really likes it. And then I was also thinking on a similar thing for Sally, she's really motivated. Right. And it keeps her on track to, you know, monitor her food and her weight and her exercise. Whereas for other people, that would be like the worst thing, you know? Right. It's just so individual because it clearly works for Sally and it probably works for a lot of people and it makes them feel good, motivates them. People love it. That class was the most packed class I've been to of all the classes I've been to. That one dance-based fitness class was wall-to-wall people. I mean, they were having so much fun. And I was like, nope, not for Jen. It's just wonderful to know that so many different approaches to life, some work for some people, other approaches work for other people, and that's all okay. You know, like you don't have to be one thing. Yep. There's not one right thing. Yep. And I'm sure those people would come into Pilates and be like, what is this? This is ridiculous. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so yeah, there's not one best way to do it. It's what your body feels best doing. So yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there. And if you like tracking your food, weight, exercise, and find that it helps you and motivates you, do it. If you find that it makes you restrictive and fearful, don't do it. <laughs> right. Back to her email. She says, if it comes up, I do tell people I am fasting on my two days, although it is pretty frustrating when people say they couldn't do it as they'd be hangry or hungry or say they are doing another crazy restricting diet. I hear you, Sally. Anyway, my question is about sugar-free chewing gum. I travel about an hour in the car to work each day and have seemingly developed a chewing gum habit while I am in the car. It initially started years ago to help my teeth chewing gum to get saliva going to break down sugar in the mouth quicker. And I've just got used to having them now, although I don't generally chew in the office or at home. I know I should stop buying a big pot of them to have in the car, but I wanted to know your view in chewing gum on my fasting days. As I said, I try not to eat until late and only have water during the day so that I can get the benefits from fasting on those two days and probably end up fasting for about 20 to 22 hours. But if I chew gum during the fasting time, does that really do anything to stop me from getting some of the benefits of fasting? I picked up from previous podcasts that you are not fans of sugar-free chewing gum, 
but not manage to find a podcast where you talk about it in any more detail. Sorry for the long email. Thanks for reading and hope you keep up the great work you are doing with promoting IF. Sally. All right. So sugar-free chewing gum. Jen. Sally, this is just a great question. and I'm glad to be answering it because I was the queen of always had my gum with me (laughs) back in the day. I had this certain brand of gum that I would buy. It was sweetened with xylitol, right? So that's supposed to be really good for your teeth from what I'd read. It was supposed to be good for you. And it was a flavor that I liked. And I bought the 600-count container on Amazon (laughs) for like a long time. I would buy the 600 count, and then I had smaller containers. When it would come, I would divide it up. And then when it would start to get low, I would divide it up. And I had it with me all the time, like really. If I wasn't drinking my stevia-flavored coffee, then I was popping my xylitol-sweetened gum. And it was just like part of my minute-to-minute life. I always had that going on. So when I hear about a gum addiction, that was me. I was super-duper gum-addicted. Now, I'm going to say something that you already know from the way that you phrased it. We do not think that gum is part of a clean fast, and I'm sorry. Now, you can get all sorts of conflicting information about this topic, you know, about what is okay and what is not okay. But my philosophy is this. If I'm going to go to the trouble of fasting, I want to make sure I'm giving my body the best chance to do what I want it to do during the fast. What do I want my body to do during the fast? Well, I would like my body to be able to access my fat stores for fuel during the fast. And the best way to do that is to keep your insulin low during the day. And fasting gets our insulin lowered, right? Because we're not doing anything that causes our body to release insulin unless you're doing something like having sweet tastes or drinking a diet soda. Now, I have a blog post that I'd like to direct you to, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes. It's called Insulin Response, Why Doesn't Everyone Agree? And I wrote this just about a year ago, and it was because there is a lot of disagreement about this. There are people out there who claim that it is okay to have all these different things during the fast, and it will not cause you to have an insulin response. That's because you can find studies that back up both sides for real. And in my blog post, I talk about this. And here's the thing. Let's say that we're just not sure because we have these studies that say that these sweet tastes do cause an insulin response. Then we have these other studies that show, no, it doesn't. Well, do you want to err on the side of, well, is it going to matter if you're not having the gum? So it can only hurt you. It can't help you is my point. I found some that are really, really interesting. And If you go and look, the one that I have numbered three, I have a quote from that one. Listen to this quote. This is pretty important. The results indicate the presence of a significant CPIR, that's a insulin response, in a subset of individuals with overweight or obesity after oral exposure to sucralose. Okay, now that's important. The people who were overweight or obese had a more significant insulin response. That's important. All right, and then another one, this is study number four that I have linked there, says obese subjects exhibited significantly greater CPIR than normal weight subjects. Okay, that's important. That's gold. That shows that 
there's variability from person to person when it comes to insulin response. And if you're someone who's been battling your weight, you're likely to have more of a pronounced insulin response than someone who has not been battling their weight. So do you really want to risk it on some gum? Once I learned about insulin response from reading the obesity code, I realized, nope, I don't want to risk it. So this is a personal choice. I wouldn't advise it. What do you say, Melanie? Yeah, I agree completely with what you said. And then on top of the any arguments about your response to the artificial sweeteners, the flavorings, the taste, just the chewing action itself is very much associated with eating in our body, consciously and subconsciously. So starting that process of chewing is most likely activating mechanisms in our system to, you know, instigate digestion, which can be confusing when we're trying to be in a fasted state where our body should not be thinking about, you know, breaking down food or starting any of those processes. So I think it's the best, the best of both worst worlds (laughs) in a way. Yeah. And that it's combining the things that we tackle so often about, you know, do certain sugar-free drinks or things like that, break the fast. It's that coupled with the chewing aspect, which is very intrinsically tied to eating. Right. Yeah, And I didn't even read the fifth one. The fifth one I have linked, this is a rat study, but I mean, it's important because the way that insulin works in our bodies is similar. It says, we conclude that they used saccharin through taste appears to elicit parasympathetic insulin release and sympathetic HGP increase reflexes in lean and obese rats. These taste-induced changes in plasma insulin and glucose turnover are exaggerated in the obese rats and may participate in obesity and an insulin resistance of the overall syndrome. So again, the overweight rats had a higher response. I just think that's just so important. You know, I think it's really important as well. And of course, those studies aren't about like xylitol, which most gum is sweetened with now because xylitol does have a very antimicrobial effect and actually can beneficially affect the microbiome in your mouth. But that said, it's still a sweet taste. The sweetness is the thing, yeah. It's funny because the studies will look at these different sweeteners and compare the insulin response of different people. But the thing is, we know even with real foods that people's insulin response varies. Yes. Completely. So I don't see how people can make blanket statements saying everybody's insulin is going to respond this way to this sweetener or this way to this sweetener. When with real foods, it's completely over the board anyway. And how does your tongue know, oh, that one was xylitol, it's okay? I mean, sweet is sweet. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like we're dumbing it down saying that, but I really believe like conceptually, sweet is sweet. Well, it is. Sweet is sweet. It is. Your brain isn't going to be able to tell the difference. But the point is, you're going to all this trouble to fast, and you want to benefit from the fast. So you have to think, here's a good rule of thumb. You know, if you're trying to decide, could I have substance XYZ, whatever that is. Could I consume whatever it is? You need to say, well, what process could it interrupt that I don't want it to interrupt? And then you have to think about that. And if it could interrupt fat burning and you're trying to do fat burning, then you don't want to risk that. If it's a medication that you have to have, then you have to weigh the risks versus the benefits. And the benefit to gum is you enjoy the gum. Yeah, Sally does say she knows it's from habit. You know, right? I think it is very habitual. Oh, I was addicted. Yeah, I get it. The next question comes from Pamela. The subject is gum. (laughs) Pamela says, I chew lots of sugar-free gum during the fast. Is that affecting my insulin? Well, we just answered that. Also, what about drinks that are sweetened like a 
Would you say bay coconut? I don't know how to say that. I've never said it. Like a, well, it's a sweetened coconut water during the fasted state. How can I tell if that is raising my insulin? It does not affect my hunger pains. So does that mean I'm okay? I have celiac disease and I found IF to be a game changer in terms of information. Any advice you have would be appreciated. So gum we've addressed, sweetened coconut water. That's a no. Yeah, that's a huge no. That's a no. How do you know if it's raising your insulin? Well, first of all, if it has sugar, it's going to be raising your insulin. So to, to answer your question, how can you tell if it's raising your insulin? Coconut water is definitely going to raise your insulin. It's best to just play it safe. Do the water, the black coffee. Right. And then you're, you're good. That's all you know. <laughs> then you yep. know. Plain tea. Yeah, you're good. But if it's got a sweetness to it, if it's got any kind of sugar or artificial sweetener, it's always going to be a no. You don't want to test it and say, huh, it didn't make me hungry. It should be fine. No, that's always a no. The reason that she's asking this, Melanie, I think is because we have some things that are considered the gray area. For example, apple cider vinegar. Theoretically, apple cider vinegar might have benefit to lowering insulin in your body. That's something that people claim that it does. Apple cider vinegar may lower insulin. It may lower blood glucose. So theoretically, that might mean you could have some and it would not do something to be a detriment during the fast. So if someone wants to to experiment with having a little bit of apple cider vinegar, if it makes you hungry, you can know it was probably a bad idea. I tried apple cider vinegar in hot water during the fast. It made me starving. So I knew that was a bad idea for me. But that isn't the test you do on something that's always a no, the artificially sweetened things. You're not like, whoop, works for me. No, that does not work for you. You might think it's working for you, but it is not working for you. An idea that did not serve you. Right, exactly. So the next question comes from Adam. The subject is chewing gum and wine. Here come the tangents. Adam says, hi, ladies. Adam here from the UK. We've got another UK listener. Well, one of many. (laughs) Loving the podcast. I'm 33 and have been IF for many years on and off, usually 16.8 or 24. Trying to lose weight. This year I started at 14 stone and now 12 stone, 8 pounds. I'm pretty relaxed at weekends with it due to social and family events. But during the week I'm clinical. I'm in no rush to lose another half stone. This year I've mixed it up and done one meal a day. I do a dirty fast. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So I have black coffee with sweetener containing aspartame. I can't find any without and water throughout the day. However, I also am slightly addicted and always have been to chewing gum. I drive a lot in my job. It contains aspartame too. Will chewing gum break me out of a fast if I don't swallow it? Also, can too much aspartame get you out of a fasted state? I try not to have too much diet drinks that are zero calories, but I will have one if I'm very hungry or if I'm tired and need to pick me up before a weightlifting workout. Okay, and then he has another question, but to address all of that, sorry, Adam, I think you know our answer. Um, Yeah. It's going to be a no-go, and I know Jen probably has thoughts about your dirty fasting. Well, you know, we say in our Facebook group, you would think the opposite of a clean fast is a dirty fast. And we actually say, no, the opposite of a clean fast is you're breaking the fast. So we don't like the words dirty fast because that implies it's just a choice you're making. I'm just going to be dirty. (laughs) You know, I'm dirty, dirty fasting. It also adds like a sense of morality to it that right. I like to stay away from good and bad and dirty right. and clean yeah. and unclean and just say what you're doing, what you're not doing, what is serving you, what's not serving you, what's doing what, rather than thinking of it in terms of, you know, yep. morality or fudging the waters. 
If you really want to experience the benefits of fasting, I firmly believe you want to fast clean and you would reject anything else because you're not giving your body the benefits that you need to get from the fasting. And so you have to really examine why are you fasting? You know, what are your goals? And if your goals are the health benefits that come with the fasted state, you want to maintain the fasted state. And again, go to my blog post that will have linked about insulin response. And it really goes into the science of that. And, you know, when you read the studies that do show an insulin response, yeah, like I say in this blog post, I could find some studies that don't show an insulin response. But if I find some that do, a lot of them do, why would I ever, you know, not go with trying to play it safe, if that makes sense? I don't want to risk it. I'm fasting for the health benefits. I started, of course, for the weight loss benefits, but now I'm in it for the health benefits. I don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, that time is precious. My time in the fast is precious, and I don't want to waste it. Does that make sense? It does. So don't be dirty, Adam. (laughs) And I say that in a joking way. You got this. And I do think, Adam, if you try doing a completely clean fast, that would probably help with cutting out the gum as well. Yeah, give yourself a few weeks. You know, it might actually feel really hard, like your body is readjusting to the clean fast. It might feel so hard, like you're like, what's going on? Your body is going to have to learn how to do that because it's been using, you know, it's been relying on those artificial sweeteners. Adam's next question, he says, also, I do like a few ales at weekend and Friday nights. These are full of carbs, et cetera. And with listening to your podcast, I'm thinking of venturing into wine. However, I get really bad heartburn from wine. Can you recommend wines which may be better to try so that it will hopefully prevent or reduce this heartburn? Thanks, Adam. Thoughts on that, Jen? Well, can they get dry farm wines in England? I don't know. I don't know either. They might not be able to. Here's the thing, Adam. You like ale, you said. You like to have ale on the weekend, on Friday night. If you prefer ale, I would say have ale. I wouldn't like make myself drink wine just because you think that it's better to drink wine. If the wine gives you heartburn and the ale does not, I would stick to the thing that you enjoy drinking. What do you think about that, Melanie? Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So you think he doesn't get any heartburn from ale? Well, I don't know. He didn't mention it. Yeah, that didn't occur to me. He talked about the ale based on the fact that it was full of carbs, but, you know, it's your eating window. And did do quite a bit of research on alcohol and stomach acid. I'm not surprised. And HCL and reflux. <laughs> it was fascinating. I bet it was. I put on my little research cap and I was like, this will be easy. I'm sure I'll find a study being like, this much wine creates reflux and this doesn't. Um, Literally all across the board. Yeah. To a insanely frustrating extent to the point where it's not even about the alcohol. I mean, it is, but it's clearly about so much more. So there are studies showing everything, everything, not even kidding. So there are studies that will compare like heavy, moderate, and light drinkers. Some of the studies find that drinking leads to greater acid reflux. It's really funny. So the studies will all start with the same thing. They'll be like, it's a well-known fact. I mean, I'm really paraphrasing here, but they always start with being like, it's a well-known fact that alcohol is linked to reflux and heartburn. But then the results will be like, but here are all these studies that kind of show different things. Some find that drinking a lot of alcohol increases the risk of 
acid reflux and things like that. But then some find no association. Some actually find people who drink have less symptoms of reflux. Go figure. Basically, reflux, it occurs when the sphincter that keeps the contents of your stomach from going up into your throat and creating reflux. That can be faulty. It can like not close completely. Or if there's too much pressure in the stomach, it can open up and let the contents flow backwards. If you don't have enough stomach acid production, it can actually create food to not digest and flow up again, which is why actually some people will take acid blockers to stop reflux when really they need more acid to break down the food, which is why we advocate supplements like HCL, especially like through the bioptimizers guys, they make some supplements to address that specifically. So you can check those out. But yeah, it's kind of frustrating, all the findings. Like one study found that small amounts of alcohol seem to decrease reflux, whereas chronic alcohol increased it. Another study found that those who drank, though, had more reflux than those who didn't drink. Another study found that having alcohol via IV, having lower amounts actually was good for reflux, but having higher amounts was not good and encouraged it. So that was people who had it intravenously? Yeah. It affected their reflux when they weren't even like drinking it? Yep. Intravenous ethanol administration causes a dose-dependent stimulation of gastric acid output. I guess it just must be that it relaxed their body to the point that their muscle just like flapped open. Is that what it was? It said low concentrations were moderate stimulants, which a lot of them do find that. So like really, really small doses of alcohol increase stomach acid, which can actually help break down the food. So less reflux, but then higher concentrations don't stimulate the stomach acid and actually can inhibit it leading to reflux. That's just so interesting. I never thought of it as being, you know, you think of it as going through the mouth and into the stomach and that it's happening because it's in the stomach, not because it's intravenous. That's so interesting. Yeah. And another study looked at IV and it compared beer and wines and they found that pure alcohol, like just pure alcohol, didn't create any gastrin release in the stomach, but beer and red wine via IV did. So random. On top of all that, another study, they actually did three studies And they looked at over 953 men and women in Northern California from 2002 to 2005. (laughs) And they found that the people who had one or more glasses of red or white wine a day had less than half the risk of Barrett's esophagus, which is related to acid reflux. That's so interesting. But the people who drank beer or liquor, so straight hard alcohol or beer, it didn't affect their risk. So they found that drinking wine actually helped. Go figure. Another study compared red wine, white wine, and water, and it found that the pressure in your stomach was decreased after white wine, but not after red wine and tap water in comparison. So basically, it's all over the board. And I think the takeaway is that it's not just, I mean, it might just be about the alcohol or the drink that you're taking. But I think it's more about the context of eating and the whole environment of your stomach, the whole system, and how it's affecting you personally rather than one or the other. So Adam, we can't really make a straight up recommendation about what type of wine is going to be better for your acid reflux or your heartburn. Basically, less might be better. I mean, I don't want to say more might be better, but depending on context, you know, the amount could matter, the timing could matter, with or without food could matter. So I think you really just have to experiment and find what works for you. And if you know it's creating reflux, it's probably creating reflux and not going that route. I will say, Jen mentioned the dry farm wines. 
I would hardcore 100% recommend if you do venture into the world of wine that you try finding organic wines that are free of toxins, that are going to not have all of the negative ramifications. Those also tend to be lower in alcohol, lower in sugar. So I know you said you're trying to get away from ales because of all the sugar. Dry from wine wines typically are less than, I think it's around like 12.5% might be their cutoff. It's pretty low for their alcohol content and their sugar content is low as well. So you could definitely check them out. If you go to dryfarmwines.com slash ifpodcast, you'll actually get a bottle for a penny with your first order. So that's something to try. But yeah, the studies are fascinating. We always want to find this one answer, but you know, there's just not, and there's not one answer. We're all individual. Yeah. And our bodies are unique. Exactly. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near-infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near-infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near-infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's j-o-o-v-v.com forward slash ifpodcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. 
The next question comes from Dawn. The subject is nicotine gum. And Dawn says, love the podcast. I'm on day 15 of one meal a day. Day one, I was 96 pounds. Today, I am 188 pounds. So good results. I'm eating about 1,300 to 1,500 calories and working out three to four days per week. Doing 23-1 with one 43-hour fast for the first time ever this weekend. It went well, except I hit it too hard with carbs and did not feel too great. I know it's a controversial question, and I haven't really found studies on this. I read The One Day Diet by Jennifer Jolin a while back and really didn't have success drinking protein water all day. One tip was to try nicotine gum to ward off hunger. I've been using that tip the past 15 days with one meal a day, maybe three or four pieces per day. I'm told it may break the fast, but again, no conclusive studies on that. I'm not a smoker and certainly don't need the gum, but I do like it as an enhancer. Any thoughts on this and or have you covered this subject? Thanks. All right, so nicotine gum. We actually did discuss nicotine on a prior podcast. I think it was in relation to, I don't know if it was when we were discussing like the vaping or maybe. We've talked about it before, but Jen, what are your thoughts on nicotine? By the way, have you ever heard of that diet book? No. Well, of course I had tried it. I did that one. <laughs> How was that one? Do you drink protein water? What is protein water? It was awful. You like mix protein powder and water, but not enough to make like a protein shake. If it was going to be like something amazing that gave me super fast results, I would try it. Mm-hmm. That was back in the day when I was like desperate and trying them. And I think you were also supposed to spin around three times. I'm not kidding. I think there was some spinning around going. <laughs> Spinning around like in a computer chair? I think you're supposed to stand up and spin around. I don't know. I just remember something about spinning around. But I could be wrong. Maybe that was something else. But I feel like it's connected with this one. But no, I did not have success drinking protein water all day either. And, you know, we know why. Because you don't want to have a lot of protein going on when you're trying to fast. You want your body to be able to get into your own protein with, you know, the process of autophagy. Recycle your own protein. Anyway... Nicotine gum might help you with hunger. So would smoking cigarettes. Heroin might help with hunger. Yeah, I'm making a dramatic point here, but there are many things that might help with hunger that we're not going to recommend, and those are all on the list. So I'm sorry that nicotine gum is recommended to combat hunger, but I don't think that it's a healthy thing that you want to put in your body because Nicotine gum is designed for people who are trying to get off of nicotine and not like get a new habit for nicotine. So that's my thought on it. I would absolutely not do that. Yes, it breaks the fast, but you know, what you need to do is fast clean and let your body learn how to fast. And then you'll find that hunger comes in a mild wave and it easily passes and it's not an emergency. And when you feel that little mild wave of hunger, Don't feel like you have to shove it down by doing something to make it go away. Just say, whoop, there's a little wave of hunger, and then go on past that. You don't need to have to try to ward off hunger. Yeah, I have complicated thoughts on nicotine. Okay. I think I smoked a cigarette like twice. I tried one at a moment in college. You tried smoking? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was in a film fraternity, and we had a retreat up in the mountains, and my friends were like, you need to see what it's like to have a cigarette. <laughs> I was like with my good friends that I really respected. They were like showing me like how you smoke a cigarette. And I was like, oh, I'm going to see what this is like. It was a moment. It didn't really do much. I felt a little raspy the next day. I was like, well, that happened. We're good. Moving on. 
The reason I have complicated thoughts is because I am really interested in neurotropics and the way that different chemicals and stuff hack the brain and could be used in our favor for productivity. Even something like caffeine is a chemical that's having effect on our brain. And so you can make the same arguments for nicotine having beneficial effects. People say that most of the problems with nicotine is coming with smoking, with cigarettes, and that the problems are coming from, you know, the carcinogenic effect of the smoke and lung cancer, um, not the actual nicotine per se. And then a lot of people in the world, like Dave Asprey talks about nicotine in his book, Game Changers. Ben Greenfold talked about nicotine a lot. We even heard Rob Wolf talk about it as far as like beneficial effects you can get from it. So that's a whole nother topic of discussion for another day. We do know that nicotine does seem to downregulate appetite. I found one study recently, they found that nicotine actually activates the brain's dopamine system and the reward pathway and somehow suppresses appetite due to that. I'm not going to say do or do not have nicotine as far as using it as a, quote, neurotropic drug to hack your performance or hack your physiology. The problem is the way of going about getting it, chewing it via sugar-free gum, For the reasons we discussed about gum and sweeteners and all that, I have to say no. (laughs) I'm not going to advocate smoking because no. (laughs) Lung cancer pretty much definitively say not good for your health. But then things like nicotine patches and things like that, I actually have mixed thoughts about that. So I'm just going to stick with your question about nicotine gum specifically, and I'm going to say no because of the chewing and the sweetening aspect rather than the nicotine per se. So complicated. Yeah, it is. Jen says no, absolutely no. (laughs) I think if there was a way that, like if there was like a nicotine coffee, I'd be interested to see what the cerebral effects of that would be. Just as like a personal experiment, I'd be very curious. Can't go with the baggage of the gum aspect of it. Then really quick question, Leela, subject gum. Hi, I love chewing gum. I'd love to be able to chew something during my fast. I know I shouldn't be having anything sweet, even zero calories during the fast, but is there any gum that's acceptable during IF? That's a slight twist. Is there any gum that's acceptable? No. No. No gum. What if they go into like the rainforest and go get like just straight up gum from the tree and chew it? Well, you know, there is like some unflavored gum. Did you know that? That's just gum. It's just like they went to the rainforest and got something from a tree. I used to play, do you remember Oregon Trail? I do remember Oregon Trail. I was a teacher and my students played it. Yeah. Well, there's also Amazon Trail that my sister and brother and I played. And one of the little items you got, I remember, you had to find the gum from the tree and like trade it for (laughs) these weird other fruits that you've never heard of. (laughs) But that's when I first learned about gum, like where it came from. That it came from a tree. Mm-hmm. But if you're just chewing that, again, we talked about like the chewing and stimulating the eating process. So I just got to say no. Let's just like not think about the chewing and the food and all of that during the fast. Would you agree, Jen? Yeah. Next question, Karina, subject breath. She says, hi, ladies. Besides the peppermint and water and spray bottle tip, is there anything else we can use for breath mints? Is gum completely out of the question? Is all essential oil okay to use if the spray bottle is the only option? I need a fresh mouth, Karina. And then also while we're talking about that, Casey says, hello, I'm brand new to this lifestyle and I have a question. I always choose sugar-free icebreaker gum or mint because I get horrible taste in my mouth, not because I'm hungry. When I fast, I've only been drinking water. Is there anything I can have to help with the horrible taste while fasting? 
All right. So I think we answered gum is going to be a no-go for addressing the breath and all of that. But as far as getting fresh breath other ways, we've talked about this a lot in the podcast. So Karina mentioned our peppermint breath spray that we really like. I have links to this in the show notes and on ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. But that's where you get these really adorable little spray bottles that I'm obsessed with and everybody loves. They're beautiful and tiny and wonderful. And you can fill them with water, add a little bit of food grade essential oil peppermint. And it's a wonderful way to just really freshen your breath, knock out any bad taste or bad breath. It's also going to have beneficial health effects as well. Doesn't make most people hungry. It suppresses most people's appetites. But if you do find it stimulates hunger, of course, you want to stay away from that. Beyond that, mints. We can't really say mints. You know, that's physical food. That's putting something physical in your mouth. Gum out of the question. Is all essential oil okay to use? No. We want to have a podcast about this in the future, actually. Essential oils, not any small thing to just tinker with. Right. People think that, oh, you know, it's like not a big deal. It sort of is a big deal. I just read a whole book about it. They have very intense physiological effects and biological effects on the body. They affect the immune system for good or bad. They can affect hormones. They can affect so many things. So you really want to be careful. And that's why we stick to something that we know is safe, like peppermint for most people. I will say we're a big fan of Uncle Harry's products for just freshening your mouth in general. We often find that if you can change, you know, the oral microbiota in your mouth, that that can address, you know, breath issues. Also what you're eating can address breath issues because oftentimes it's, you know, residual effects from your digestion and things like that. And very often does go to the gut microbiome in your mouth, which you can address through food choices. Sometimes require tackling things from a bigger perspective rather than just symptomatically addressing it by trying to cover up a bad smell or bad taste. Just like with fasting, we want to address the root cause of the problem, not just mask symptoms. What are your thoughts, Jen? Right. Yeah, I think that's an important point. You know, all those things that you just said are good. Be very cautious, like Melanie said, with the essential oils about just thinking, oh, they said I could use peppermint essential oil, so that means all essential oil is going to be the same. Peppermint does cause some people to feel hunger, and it is not good for everybody. It's in the gray area. Peppermint may not work well for you. Also, sometimes people think that because we say it's okay to freshen your breath with peppermint here and there, that that means you should put it in your water and start drinking peppermint water all day long. No, we don't recommend that either. When you drink a beverage, it goes on and on for a long period of time, and that's what we want to avoid. So, you know... When I have a weird taste in my mouth, sometimes I'll just brush with just water during the day. I might use toothpaste, but sometimes I'll just brush my tongue really quick with just water, and that always helps. And I do think I would love, Jen, to get somebody who specializes in oral health and how it relates to your food and your digestion. If we can find like somebody who's into intermittent fasting, who's also, you know, that's their specialty, I think that would be fascinating. Well, I actually interviewed a pediatric dentist on episode 12 of Intermittent Fasting Stories, Melissa Wages. Oh, wonderful. She is a pediatric dentist, and she talked about, yes, she does intermittent fasting, of course, because that's what the podcast is about. So, So, yeah, she talked about fasting and oral health. So that would be a great episode for you and for other listeners who want to hear more from the perspective of a dentist. Awesome. Yeah. Look at that. Episode 12. Instant resource. Yes. I love it. But yeah, this has been absolutely wonderful. 
A few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions to the podcast, there are a few ways you can do that. You can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. You can also go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. On that website is where you can also find the Stuff We Like page where we put links to all of the stuff that we like. Also, you can listen to our podcast now on Himalaya, the Himalaya app. We love, love, love Himalaya. And if you get that app, you will soon be able to get the podcast 24 hours in advance, which is super awesome. And that podcast app, Himalaya, is absolutely amazing for having all of your podcasts in one place, leaving comments, keeping everything together, making playlists. Guys, I'm obsessed with the Himalaya app. I use it now every day of my life. I'm so happy they reached out to us and wanted to partner with us because now I'm using their app and it's like game changing. Oh, I'm so glad. Yay. So there will be links to all of that in the show notes. And you can follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. Did I leave out anything, Jen? I don't think so. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Thank you. And then lastly, listeners, if you have questions for episode 100, which is coming up very soon. It is. It's going to be Ask Us Anything. So if you have any questions about anything, it doesn't have to be related to fasting at all, definitely submit those. And I've seen these questions, some of them. I'm loving them already. Yeah, it's good stuff. So it can be as random. It can be about anything. Like, why is your cat always making all that noise? That'd be a good one. What is your cat's name? Yeah, there you go. What are you looking at right now? There you go. What are your thoughts on the human condition? (laughs) Stay away from politics. We will not talk politics. Uh, I know. (laughs) I will not talk politics. (laughs) Or you can ask, and that'll be the answer, I guess. So, yeah, definitely send those in. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.